Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Margaret Mitsushima's Police Procedurals with Heart feature canine deputy Matty Cobb and her very smart partner, a highly trained German shepherd called Robo. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Margaret talks about the remarkable real-life dog Robo is based on and about the truth of writing what you know from her experience. But before we get to Margaret, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Margaret's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review so others will find us too. Now, here's Margaret. Hello there, Margaret, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, hello, Jenny, and thank you so much for inviting me to be your guest today. I really appreciate it. So we are talking from across the ocean. You're in Wellington, Colorado, and I'm in Auckland, New Zealand, and that's the wonder of the the community we live in. It's great, isn't it? It is. It is wonderful. Yes, I hope to visit your country someday. Oh, I think you'd very much like the South Island, actually. Um, It's got some beautiful scenery similar to what Colorado has. Mm. Look, was there a once upon a time moment when you felt that you just had to turn your hand to fiction and somehow life would be less if you didn't do that? And if so, what was the catalyst for that? I think that I started wanting to write fiction when I was in high school, but my guidance counselor and my mother kind of tag-teamed with each other to convince me that I needed a career where I had guaranteed paychecks. And it's probably a very good thing that they did. So I became a speech pathologist and will possibly talk about that more a little later. But the once upon a time moment came when I was working in my own clinic. I had established it about 10 years earlier. And I realized that I was very tired of that career. Um, It had been very difficult getting the Medicare and Medicaid certification and dealing with all of the insurance companies. And so I was a bit burned out, uh, probably more with the management than I was with actually working with my clientele. I did decide there there was a catalyst. And it was a big change in Medicare reimbursement. And I decided, all right, it is time to move on. And I had always dreamed of being a storyteller. I had read all of the Sidney Sheldon books back in the 80s and 90s, and I just loved the way he told a story. So I uh, went ahead and put my company up for sale and 
then after the company sold, I was able to have just a little bit of a nest egg to go ahead and pay attention to the educational process of becoming a fiction writer. Fantastic. So you were almost driven out of that first profession by red tape, really, it sounds like. I think the red tape is probably what what uh, covered me up and tied me down. <laughs> and I just, I just decided, uh, no, enough is enough. Yes, yes. So now, remarkably, how long ago was that? That was actually clear back in 1998. Right, so nearly 10 years, yeah, yeah. So you've now on your fifth book in the police procedurals that have become really good sellers for you. I know that you tried your hand at quite a few other things before you got going with this, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but the series that you're making your name with now uh, feature a canine cop called Matty Cobb and her German Shepherd partner, Robo, and they're set in the mountains. They're very much outside stories. But what attracted you to the idea of writing police procedurals? Well, my husband is a veterinarian and we've been married, we're going on 40 years. Um, I had... Uh, never really worked in his office, but I've assisted him after hours just countless time. And I was amazed at how many of his clients and the people around the stables, whenever he made a call, wanted to watch him work. So I was very drawn to having a veterinarian as a character in the books. Um, I had not decided yet that I was, I, I knew I wanted to write a mystery, but I hadn't decided yet on police procedurals. Uh, my husband, Charlie, came home from work one day and he was telling me about one of his clients who had brought a patrol dog in that he had trained for narcotics detection. And um, they were transferring this dog to the Forest Service because there was a lot of trafficking through the mountains and the national forests uh, of drugs. And so the Forest Service wanted to buy a dog to try to combat this problem. And so Charlie told me this at lunch, and and the idea was just suddenly born. Yes. Uh, I decided, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to have a canine cop who is female, and she will have her dog who is trained for patrol and narcotics detection. The community will be threatened by drug traffic, and it'll be a small mountain town near the national forests, and um, there'll be a veterinarian who is male who will be her love interest, and together they'll solve crimes that affect their little mountain community of Timber Creek, Colorado, which is totally fictional. You won't find it on a map. (laughs) (laughs) But it sounds as if there's quite a lot of parallels between your own situation. Certainly, you've mentioned the, the personal relationship with a veterinarian husband, but also the setting. I think you're cl- quite close to the mountains as well, are you? That's right. Um, our our uh, 
small town is north of Fort Collins, Colorado, which is on the front range of Colorado. Uh, we're fairly close to, we're about 30 miles from the Wyoming border. So we have the mountains to our west and the plains to our east. Great, great. You've got, the, I think the fifth book, the latest book is coming out very soon, isn't it? It might already be out, but it's, how, how whereabouts are you with Tracking Game? That's the latest book, isn't it? That is right. And Tracking Game releases on November 12th. It is uh, available for pre-orders. And and those of you who like to um, go to Goodreads, you can find we're having some, uh, oh, darn. The Goodreads giveaways are for United States only. Uh, But we we are getting some reviews on Goodreads. Quite a few of our listeners are in the States, um, Margaret, so there will oh, be good. people listening who would be able to enter into, into that that um, draw. So now Maggie and her partner, Cole Walker, they come up against something very frightening and unexpected in Tracking Game, and I don't even know what it is because we haven't had a chance to read the book yet. Um, and so we can't give away any spoilers, if, but we wouldn't want to. What sparked the idea for this book? I like to write these mysteries so that Cole Walker and Maddie Cobb both have work to do. And I like for there to be quite a bit of work that Robo, Maddie's partner, has to do also. So when I'm planning a mystery, I kind of sit down and I say, okay, what could impact animals and impact humans um, that could cross over together and and there could be a death of a human that my protagonist has to investigate? So uh, I it's book five, and I was a little bit stymied as to whether or not I could come up with one of these ideas. I went over to a friend's house. She's a retired wildlife manager. And here uh, she worked here for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And we started brainstorming together about species who species that could be trafficked into Colorado illegally. And so uh, we won't give away the spoilers as to why this might have happened. But, um, yes, that's how I came up with the idea, was sitting in her living room. And she was just, we were just Googling things and, and finding species that were being trafficked. And the the one species that I latched onto was, uh, it, it is a species that's being pretty much abused. Um, So I decided to write about that one. Sounds really fascinating, I must say. And Robo, Robo's a great character in the book, the dog. And I understand that he was inspired by a real dog, wasn't he? Yes, he he was. Um, I have another friend who is a retired canine handler um, an invaluable consultant that um, I I just I sit and listen to her stories and get all these wonderful ideas for what my patrol dog might be able to do. She worked in Bellingham, Washington, and her dog was named Robo. And 
Robo had saved her life many times. Uh, he was cross-trained in patrol and narcotics detection, like the character in my book. And he um, had been just a remarkable partner for her. We have regional police dog trials where canine handlers get together and they compete in various activities that uh, they practice all the time that helps their dogs develop certain skill sets, uh, such as tracking, uh, agility, narcotics detection, or explosives detection, depending upon which way the dog's been trained. And um, so she said that she and her partner, Robo, often won at these different competitions because he was just such a remarkable dog. So when I decided to do the series with this, this dog, I thought, okay, I think I want to turn him into a wonder dog, similar to Lassie. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you watched Lassie back in the day. But, <laughs> but I thought, well, I just... The way my friend Beth talked about her Robo, uh, I could tell that he was a very special dog, and she could teach him to do just about anything. And in fact, she had trained him to do many, many different skills above and beyond what he came to her uh, with, um, such as finding little spent cartridges from bullets. Um, because she trained him on gunpowder and things like that, which are not your um, average things that they they cross-train dogs for. No, that's right. And in Burning Ridge, which is the most recent one apart from the one that's coming out soon, that the dog does exactly that, doesn't he? He actually finds some spent cartridges. That's right. Yes, and he actually found one in the very first book, Killing Trail, too. And um, most, I, I shouldn't say that most dogs aren't found to do that, uh, trained to do that, because those dogs that are trained in explosives detection are trained to do exactly that. Uh, and they are trained on, on tens of, uh, you know, up to a hundred different scents of explosives that they can detect. But typically, an average patrol and narcotics dog isn't trained to detect gunpowder. Gosh, up to 100 different scents. That's amazing, isn't it? It is. It is so amazing. Now, I think you've made a promise to your readers, I've read it somewhere, that you're never going to kill off Robo in the series. You say that you don't want to be like Old Yeller, that famous classic movie where the boy loses his dog. I wonder why you feel so strongly about this. And, and also, do you know what has happened to the real Robo? Is he still alive or did he live the term of his natural life? He did live the term of his natural life, but unfortunately he was uh, deafened in a warehouse explosion uh, they didn't realize there were explosives in that building, and he was too close when he was doing a search for narcotics. Um, he was forced to retire, but he became my friend's pet. 
And um, they're difficult pets to have because they are so high energy. And but at that point, he was he was getting some age on him. And so she was able to keep him until the end of his life. And he died a natural death. So that's that's wonderful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I feel strongly, I guess, because um, I'm basically, even though I write murder mysteries, <laughs> I'm basically pretty soft-hearted when it comes to animals. I did have a um, man actually write to me early on, right after Killing Trail came out, and he said, you're not going to kill Robo in your series, are you? And I made the promise to him right then. I was like, no, Robo will never die. When the series ends, he'll just, it'll just end. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to have Robo die. Did you watch the movie Old Yellow when you were a child and really feel uh, indignant about the death by any chance? I did. And yes, I, I did watch that movie. I can remember pretty much sobbing my heart out that night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> now, we've referred to the fact that before you got really into your stride with these canine stories, that you tried your hand at a lot of genres, and you also mentioned that you really tackled learning to write like it was another skill set that you needed to Perfect. So tell us a little bit about those earlier experiments and where you first started trying your hand. Um, I started attending writing conferences and specifically commercial fiction conferences uh, right around 2002. And there was so much to learn about character development, plot development, um, how you write, um, just just everything. It was all new to me. Um, I had thought that I could just sit down and write a story. In fact, I thought, oh, I'll probably be published in a year or two. Well, no, that is not how it worked for me. Uh, I had a lot to learn. Um, I started out by writing some romance. Uh, the conferences I attended were very much uh, focused on romance in those days, and mysteries weren't that popular. Um, they were actually telling us that that the uh, genre of mysteries was had really gone downhill at that particular time. But there's one thing I have learned in this publishing business is that the dip popularity of the different genres does wax and wane over the years and they are very popular right now um yeah so i did i did write some romance i tried writing a medical thriller but my thriller was really kind of a flop and it it was more like a soap opera or a drama instead of a thriller and then i tried writing a historical romance that got uh, won a prize and at that, oh, yeah, at that point, I was becoming pretty discouraged. But that little prize just kind of, you know, perked me up again. Um, but it still didn't find a publisher. And I was very determined to follow the pathway of traditional publishing rather than self-publishing because I believe that self-publishing involves a whole new skill set. And I am not 
technology oriented. So yeah. I went ahead and and just kept striving towards finding a traditional publisher. And one of my um, relatives said, why don't you try a mystery? And at that point, there were several mystery series that had become quite popular. And so I started reading all those mystery series and binge reading and just feeling so excited about the genre and uh, came up with Killing Trail, which is the first book in the series. And it found a publisher. First, it found an agent and then it found a publisher. So it was gr- it was a great uh, comment for me to go ahead and follow. You found your niche. That was it, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, I think so. It, it, it helped me write what I know, which is what we're encouraged to do, which is the life of a veterinarian. And um, we've always had dogs. Uh, so we've always, I've, I've been a great studier of dog language and body language. And so it just helped me put together those things that I have gleaned from everything in my past. Right in a series, you get to know the characters really well, of course. And I wonder if you ever have the experience that they still do things that surprise you or they refuse to do things that you want them to do. And if that does happen, how do you handle it? Um, yes, those those characters, they, they are wily ones. They don't always behave the way you think they're going to. Um, I wrote Killing Trail over a period of about five years with lots and lots of revisions. So I did that pretty much by the seat of my pants. And um, when the publisher became interested in it, they did even want me to restructure it a little bit more into a traditional mystery because I had I had set it up more like a suspense initially. So um, I decided on book two because I only had six months to write it instead of five years under contract. <laughs> it, it's different once you get a contract. I decided I'd better outline. So I did go ahead and outline, and and it was amazing because yes, I do have certain things as I start as I set up a scene, and I know how the plot needs to go. I do have certain things that I want my characters to accomplish in that scene, and sometimes that just doesn't happen. And in fact, they show me something different, which happened in Stocking Ground. It was it was very interesting because the my um, police investigators found the victim's car and in doing so they were investigating that car and they found her diary under the seat which I had no idea was there until (laughs) until they found it so it, it is a very interesting experience and um, this last book that I wrote, book six, which will come out later, um, we're talking about Tracking Game, which is book five. But this summer, I w- I've been writing book six. And I decided to go back to just writing it by the seat of my pants again. And it is quite fun to let your characters 
sort of dictate where the story's going to go, as long as they don't go somewhere down rabbit holes where they don't belong. Uh, it is kind of fun to discover the story with them. That's lovely. And the, the, the relationship between Matty and Cole is central. It, it's a very gentle romance. It, in, in the stage where we're at when Burning Ridge, it's still a little bit tentative and... Do you have any idea yourself where they're going and and or is that still unrevealed to you as well? I think the character arc of those two protagonists is pretty set in my mind. I know where I want them to get. Their their relationship has been pretty tentative because Maddie has a lot of baggage in her past from being molested as a child by her father figure. And Cole himself is recently divorced because his wife got tired of his workaholic behavior and him never never being there for the family. And in fact, developed some clinical depression. And so she left the family and didn't even take her kids with her. And so Cole is very busy learning how to be a single parent and dealing with his busy veterinary practice. Um, and so I I kind of wanted a year to go by before I got them together completely. And uh, yes, book five has some uh, developments in that area that uh, I was pleased with, and I hope my readers will be too. Oh, that's fantastic. Look, you referred to the fact that you keep dogs yourself, and I'm interested that uh, on your blog you've mentioned this. One of your favourite sayings is, "Dogs are not our whole lives, but they make our lives whole," which is quite a neat little way to put it. Could you tell us about the dogs in your life right now? We have four currently, and um, they're all. Let's see, they're all working dogs. Three of the four are bird hunting dogs, and one of them is a cattle herding dog. So my husband and I raise Angus cattle, and Tess, the border collie, uh, goes with him daily uh, up to his veterinary clinic. And if there's any cattle that need to be moved or whatnot, she's right there um, helping him. He... uh, does feed with a feed truck and he said she jumps in and she puts her head in his lap every day while they feed so (laughs) i think that's (laughs) one of her favorite times of day we have another uh german short hair pointer named birdie who also goes with him to the clinic every day and uh, she is a she's our youngest dog, and she's very very busy, and it helps for her to be out of the yard and out of her run um, during the day, so that she can run around. We have a very elderly yellow lab named Lily, who uh, oh we've had her for well over ten years. I'm not I I can't tell you right at the moment how old she is. I'm going to guess 13 or 14. So she's getting up in age for a lab. Um she used to be the one that went to the clinic, but now she's just happier if she stays in the yard. And then we have a house dog named Hannah who is another German short hair pointer, but she's kind of a throwback 
to English pointers that don't have much of a hair coat. And when we got her in December as a puppy, um, years ago, she was just shivering and cold. And my husband brought her into the house and, and I said, well, let's figure out how to keep her in the house. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she thinks she's the favorite, which she might be because she does get to sleep in the house. Although the, <laughs> the other dogs do have their heated dog houses and, and big runs. So they're pretty happy too. And you mentioned that they're bird dogs. Does your husband hunt or, or shoot or do they do any birding? Yes, they do. Uh, it's it's really his hobby that he enjoys so much. And I think he enjoys training as much as hunting, if not more so. So he has he has trained all three of the bird dogs. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Look, turning to your wider career, tell us a little bit about your life before you became a full-time writer. You've, I guess you've kind of talked quite a bit about that with your speech pathology. Did you find that a satisfying career and has it fed into your writing, do you think? Yes, um, I did really enjoy that career. I worked in a hospital for about 10 years and then I had my own clinic for about 10 years. And I did really enjoy working with the people and the physical therapists and the occupational therapists that we would work hand in hand. We we usually specialized in people with neurological disorders or injuries. And so um, that, that was a very rewarding career. Um, I steered away from putting a character with communication disorder in my books until book five, Tracking Game. And I do have a character in there who is part of the family of the first victim in the mystery. And he has had a stroke and has a condition called aphasia, which is uh, an uh, inability to communicate with language expressively, although he can comprehend what is said to him. And um, so that, that was my first time that I really decided to develop a character that came from my first career uh, I really enjoyed writing Doyle. His name is Doyle Redman, and um, I hope uh, others do too. I, I combined quite a bit of my history in, in book five because I grew up in a ranching family, and, and this is a ranching family who has lost a family member to murder. And uh, so I combined quite a bit of my previous life in this past book. It sounds great. I can't wait to read it. I've actually got a brother-in-law who developed aphasia after a stroke a few years ago, and it's very poignant. He can understand everything that's said around him, but he can't do anything more than just nod and say yes, yeah, or, or no. Sort of, you can. He communicates amazingly, but he can't speak. It is amazing the way the the individual develops alternative ways of speaking and you would think that a person with aphasia could use some of these uh, specific communication devices like Stephen Hawking did who um, was the scientist who had ALS but because aphasia is a 
disorder in the symbolic system of language. They typically can't handle written symbols, and even pictorial symbols can become confusing when trying to communicate with those. So a lot of times, you know, they end up just kind of developing a system of communication with their family, and their family become translators. Yeah, that's exactly what's happened in our case. It's interesting that you say that because, yes, I mean, you would naturally think, well, why not just write it? But it isn't something that Phil feels comfortable about doing. The writing is just as difficult, well, nearly as difficult. He can do it, but it it isn't an effective form of communication for him. So I'm interested to hear that it is part of the symbolic language system. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that is, it's a, it's a crazy disorder and, and can be quite confusing to the people that it impacts, both the, the people with the disorder and their family members. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I was happy to be able to put that into a book because maybe that will help some people. Yes, absolutely. Look, is there one thing you've done perhaps more than any other in your career that's been the secret of your success? Oh, well, thank you for saying I it's success. <laughs> you know, it's, I think somebody who's written six books in, in for, for starters, that's success. <laughs> in, the, in the midst of all of it, as you're struggling to produce books and promote those books, it, it sometimes gets lost. Um, I guess... I guess one of the things I have done that I feel has been very important is that I attend reader-based conferences like BoucherCon World Mystery Conference, and uh, I go to Left Coast Crime here in the States. And these these conferences invite readers to attend. They're not how to write conferences like the craft-based conferences that I've gone to in the past. So I, I try to do at least two of those a year. And I get to meet all kinds of readers from all over and uh, just talk about the books. It's a lot of fun. Oh, that's wonderful. Look, turning to Margaret as a reader, because this is the joys of binge reading. So wh- who do you binge read now and who would you like to recommend to listeners. I do love some really popular mystery writers. Um, Lee Child writes mysteries and thrillers. He's, his books have turned into thrillers primarily. And um, he has his character, Jack Reacher, who has uh, who is a retired military police officer. And I just love his books. And then I love to read Michael Conley. I can read those books over and over also. He writes a Harry Bosch character who is a detective. And then, of course, Sue Grafton and her alphabet mysteries. And she has them A to Y. Unfortunately, she passed away before she could write Z. And her yes. yes. So I love those books, and I read those over and over. Uh, there are a couple of local authors that you might have heard about. Um, C.J. Box lives up in Wyoming, and he writes. Oh, oh yes, now I ha- yes, I have heard of C.J. Box. Yeah. He writes some nice, really nice outdoor mysteries that feature a game warden, and then Craig Johnson 
writes the Longmire series, which was turned into a Netflix um, series. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, um, and, and he lives up north, too. And then two Colorado writers, Scott Graham, if any of your listeners like would like to take a tour of the national parks of the states with uh, a mystery thrown in, Scott Graham writes the National Parks Mysteries, and he has five out, and he's writing his sixth. And then I do like um, Mark Stevens also, and he writes mysteries set in the on the western slope of Colorado, and uh, so they're set in the mountains too. Fantastic! They sound great. I I haven't heard of those two Colorado writers, so I'll certainly look them up. Good, good. Thank you. Look, we're coming to the end of our time together. It's amazing how quickly it's gone by. Circling around and taking a little pause and looking back over where you've come from, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? I think I'd start sooner. My first book didn't come out until I was, oh, let's see, I was 63 years old. And I, uh, at this stage, you know, I'm getting older. I wish I had started about ten years earlier. <laughs> so, yeah. so that might be that might be what I'd do differently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what's next for Margaret in the next twelve months? You've mentioned book six. Is there a title for book six yet? Yes, there is. I'm so excited about it too. It's called Hanging Falls, and Hanging Falls. Hanging yeah. Falls. And it's set up in the Colorado Rockies, and a waterfall is very much a part of it. Um, and uh, yes, I just finished the draft that went into the editor just this week. And so we'll have several months of editing to go, but right now I'm I'm having a little rest. Oh, that's great. So that'll come out sometime next year, will it? Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes, it will come out in the autumn season of 2020. Great. Yes. Have you ever had any thoughts about doing something different from the mysteries? I I heard uh, Louise Penny say one time at a conference that she had one good idea and she was going to write it until it was dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of feel that way at this point now. Yeah. I do have a couple of historical romances. They're sweet romance that I really love the characters. So if I do decide to stop writing mysteries, I might go back to those manuscripts and brush them off and revise them again and see if I can get them ready to be published. Um, I have one and a half written. So, um, I, I just, I really do love the characters. So we'll see. That would yeah. that would probably be what I'd move on to. That's lovely, Margaret. You've mentioned that you like to go to these reader conferences. So where can readers find you online? I have a website and it's margaretmizushima.com. I can also be found on Facebook 
I have an author page and a personal page. You're welcome to, um, you know, connect with me on both. They do blend together. I do post some of the same information on both. And then I'm on Twitter, at Marg Mizu. And I'm also on Instagram. I'm under Marg Mizu on that too. Great. Well, we'll make sure that those links are in the show notes so that people will, they'll be there in perpetuity really so that people will be able to find it for months after this podcast goes up. So that's wonderful. Um, Thank you so much, Margaret, for taking part today. It's been fascinating to hear about your work and the dogs. Well, thank you so much for having me as a guest. Lovely. We'll talk again soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.